We are diving back into our Easy Yoke series today, and this is where we're asking some people, hey, what is Jesus teaching you as you take his yoke upon you? Uh, and I'm excited to introduce Roland Smith. We all know Roland. He's not a new voice, but he is a voice that we don't hear from as frequently. He's always up there playing music and doing all sorts of stuff behind the scenes. Uh, but he's going to preach, and he's going to answer this question for us today. Now, Roland, I know some of the reason that you haven't been up here preaching is you've been focused on Pando, the Pando Collective, which is a huge part of what we're trying to do as a church. But also, you are getting your PhD, and very soon, we're going to have to call him Dr. Smith. That Absolutely. has a very, it's regal. It's, it's wonderful. Oh, tell us about your PhD. Well, yeah, so it's in missiology, okay. which is a big theological word, but really it just, it just ties to the Panda Collective and it ties to our heartbeat here, which is uh, not only how do we gather as a church and support each other and love each other, but how do we love the world, you know, yeah. love our city and love our neighborhoods. And so that's what missiology is. It's studying how to participate with God and mission. So that's basically what that big title is. It's just, how do you do that really well? I love it. And I'm going to wear out Dr. Smith. Thank I'm you. I'm going to call yeah, you that you. all the time. But, uh, so personally, Roland and his wife, Kitty, they have a whole mess of kids. And it's hard to keep, I sometimes forget. And I'm like, oh, is that one of your children? So tell us about your kids. Yeah, so uh, we have four of our own, um, starting with Carson is our oldest son. Uh, who you've seen here occasionally leading worship with his wife, Corey, who is here about once a month. And we love Corey. She's one of the best additions to our family. Uh, Will Smith, not the Will, not Smith, the Will Smith, but Will okay. Smith, um, is our son. Kitty Smith, who is expecting our first grandchild in September. Wow. So we're super excited about that. And then Gia is our youngest. She just turned 18, graduated from high school. So we're kind of on the way to empty nesting, but then we have uh, a couple of foster kids that um, are also part of our household that we love very much. I love that. And this is just a suggestion, but for your first grandchild, you should have them call you Dr. Grandpa. That's, that's a great idea. I'm going to be Papa, but Dr. Papa works. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect. perfect. Uh, so one of the things I love talking about with Roland, I think I like talking about this more than he likes to talk about it, is he toured with all sorts of bands back in the day, uh, Quiet Riot, B.B. King. You actually played B.B. King's famous guitar, Lucille. Uh, it's a fascinating, like, first career that Roland had. What do you remember about those days? Um, not a lot. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, I mean, it was a great, great experience, and I just kind of happened into it at 19 years old, and uh, amazing to get to hang out with some of my heroes and be in big coliseums and on tour, and um, as exciting as it was, it was short-lived, and I would never go back on tour again, um, but it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. Roland, you've lived uh, an amazing life so far, but what I love about Roland is he's still pressing in to the kingdom of God and learning from Jesus, and that's what we get to hear from him today. And the question, Roland, is just that. What are you learning from Jesus as you take his yoke upon you? All right. Well, thank you, and it's great to be with you this morning. Glad to be here. Welcome to everyone online, and uh, I love to be part of this series. It was a real honor for Jonathan to ask me to be part of kind of answering this question, what has Jesus been teaching you? But one of my favorite things is that I'm getting to preach on a Sunday when my daughter-in-law, Corey, is the worship leader. And the whole band was really good, but can that girl sing? Yeah. <laughs> 
She can. Um, I love getting introduced around town, not as this is Roland, but as, hey, this is Corey Smith's father-in-law. I mean, that's my identity that I love to carry. But anyway, it's great to be with you. And I want to um, address Jonathan's question, what is Jesus teaching you? What is the easy yoke that Jesus has taught you. I want to do it with two stories, one that's my story and one that is a parable that Jesus told. And both stories illustrate what I believe to be an easier yoke of faith um, or following uh, Jesus. And I would characterize uh, the yoke that I want to talk about, the easier yoke that I uh, want to talk about, as the contrast between religion and simply living a life following Jesus. And you might think that those things are synonymous, that religion and following Jesus would be the same. But I would say that they're very, very different. You see, I love the church. I love people. I love you guys. I love Jesus, obviously. I love the scriptures. I love gathering together. But I am not a big fan of religion. And I would characterize religion as the rules and the structures and the things that we, the heavier yoke that we have put on following Jesus at times. Um, and I want to illustrate it in these stories to you, what that means, the difference between religion and simply following Jesus. So let's go into these stories. Story number one. Now, many of you know that um, my family started Third Space Coffee up on North Academy a few years ago. Uh, we sold it last year, but um, it was an idea, actually, that was kind of first talked about and uh, dreamed about at Cindy and Chuck Limbrick's kitchen table, long before Cindy and I even knew who Pulpit Rock was or we were on staff here. Kitty and I were out at their farm having lunch at their table, and I kind of hatched this crazy idea about a community space, a cafe where we could bring people together and they could be around tabletops doing business or personal stuff. We could have live music and art, and we could be for the city and do things for charity and for cities. And Cindy and Chuck immediately loved the idea. And Cindy raised her hand and said, I want to be part of launching this. And she helped kind of curate the look of it and the colors and how things felt. Um, and Chuck said, man, our band will play there, and we want to play the grand opening. And, and Chuck even made this little sign for where the cash register is. So their, their family was all in to this idea about Third Space Coffee. And we immediately decided, well, we need to have a preview party. We need to kind of show to our friends and our acquaintances uh, what Third Space is going to be about. And so we need to serve coffee that we're going to serve, obviously. So we had baristas there doing really, really good pour-overs of some of the best coffee around. Um, we were serving these sugar waffles, these little round waffles. And in the dough, it's infused with sugar, and then you cook it. It's like eating drugs. 
You just kind of constantly eat them. And then, and then Chuck was there with his keyboard, and he was uh, playing with kids, and he was playing music and doing funk and Stevie Wonder and stuff and bringing life to the party. Cindy out on the sidewalk had set up kind of an arts and a craft exhibit, and the proceeds from that went to charity, which was really the heartbeat of Third Space to be about the city. And so we set this up at Welcome Fellow, which is a co-working space up on Tejon, and we invited 50 to 60 of our closest friends, and they all came, people from ministry and, uh, you know, churches and just different people we knew, and they crowded in, and the inside of Welcome Fellow was super crowded, and the sidewalk was crowded, and the baristas were trying to keep up with coffee. It was kind of feverish. And... Um, Something happened at the party that night that kind of struck fear in me and a little bit of anger and frustration. And I was out on the sidewalk where Cindy was, and she remembers this moment too. Um, and I looked through the window and I saw my son, Will, who was one of the baristas that was doing pour-overs, running through the crowd with a hot cup of coffee and a waffle, like weaving in and out of people. Whereas I'm wanting things to be calm, I'm wanting to have a, um, a good reputation and show the business, you know, to be respectable and all these things. Here's my son like running through the crowd uh, feverishly with a cup of coffee. And I'm wondering what in the world is going on. And I, I kind of got angry and frustrated with him and I left my post with Cindy and quickly ran to where he was going to be at the door to meet him and to stop him before he spilled coffee on someone and ruined the night. Now, that response to Will, that anger and that frustration and that worry about like what we looked like and our reputation and everything, I can remember it. It really wasn't Will's fault. It was a triggered response from how I was raised in the geography that I was raised in. I was raised in the deep south, and in our family, uh, there was an etiquette, you know, to how you lived, and it didn't matter what was happening behind closed doors because what was happening that other people could see, that was what was important. And so, you know, it mattered how you looked to other people, how you behaved in public and those kinds of things, and, and, I, and it kind of triggered me that night, what Will was doing. And those were the same kind of things that escalated and were taught to me in church as well, my first church experiences. Uh, I came to Christ in my early 20s. I wasn't raised in the church, but immediately I was in men's Bible studies and in other things that were kind of teaching me how to look like a good Christian is how I remember it. I remember the Bible study, the men's Bible study I was in, we studied a lot of Proverbs. We memorized them. And a lot of them were about how you live, you know, and how you behave. And, um, and I just remember that the knowledge that I was getting from the Scriptures and about God seemed to be leading toward how to look like a good Christian, or how to fit into the right behavior box. And it was kind of quizzical to me because 
I've always been a person that when I want to learn something or when I want to do something, I can just dig in and just learn it and do it myself. So I was reading the Gospels and reading the Bible and studying theology and doing all these things. And the stories of Jesus that I was reading didn't seem to quite fit or quite line up with what I was being taught in church. The Jesus that I was reading about was a rebel. It painted a much different picture. He was a guy that was kind of turning religion upside down on its head. He was kind of dismantling what you would expect about rules and conformity. And he didn't preach much about rules. He preached about the kingdom of God, this kingdom that was different than the kingdom of the world. And he didn't teach it behind a pulpit. He talked about it around tables, with food, eating with people that were discarded by the church, people that couldn't come to the synagogue or the temple because they were unclean. They weren't the right people to be associated with. And so what I was seeing in Jesus's life, it was, you know, it was a little bit parallel to church, but it didn't seem like it really kind of meshed. His congregation, the misfits, the ragtags of society, that was how I had felt when I was younger, fighting these, this ethical rules-based box that I was told to be in. Somewhere in my early faith journey, I remember hearing a sermon. I don't remember where, but a guy was teaching about a parable that Jesus told. And it radically changed the way I look at faith and following Jesus. I was still a pretty young Christian, uh, three or four years in. And, but this really shaped how I thought about following Jesus, the way that he taught this parable. And in this parable, Jesus dismantles religious expectations. He turns religion upside down, and he does something very unexpected to the people listening to the parable when he's teaching it. But if you've studied Jesus enough, you know it's very Jesus-like. He puts the keys to the kingdom of God in the hands of the villain in the story. It's the same thing that happens in Matthew 11. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Matt, uh, Jonathan used that passage to open up our series. And in that passage, it says that the kingdom of God is not revealed to the wise and the learned, but it's revealed to those that approach the kingdom in the simplest of ways, with humility, like a child. And Jesus uses this metaphor in other places in Scripture, to be like a child with our faith. And so, I thought, instead of me reading this parable to you uh, that I want us to talk about, I thought that we would watch this really short dramatization of this parable, which I think all of you may be familiar with. So, let's watch this. The Miracle of Mercy the Good Samaritan. This is Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. 
You see, when Jesus was on earth, he wanted everyone to know what God thought about things. So he took every opportunity to teach people about God's heart. <clears throat> One day, a religious expert stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> what does the law say? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> right. Hola. Do this and you will live. Wait. The man then asked, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. <laughs> They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Another man who worked in the temple who was called a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there. Uh, huh? But he also passed by on the other side. Then a Samaritan came along. Uh. Samaritans were hated by Jews. They were seen as lesser people and Jews would not interact with them. But when the Samaritan saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. One room, please. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes. Now go and do the same. All right, so how many know that story? And that's usually how that story is kind of presented, right? I mean, it's taught in kids' ministries around the world that way to just, you know, to say, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. Take care of people uh, that are hurt or less fortunate or whatever. And, th and that's true. That story does teach that. But you've got to remember that Jesus wasn't telling this to children, he was talking to religious experts, theologians of the day. He was telling this for a specific reason. And so while it does teach to take, your, take care of your neighbor, to love your neighbor, Jesus is doing something under the surface of that that is much more earth-shattering. So let's look at the characters real quick of this story. We have the victim, a Jewish man walking down the road who's attacked 
uh, by robbers and left for dead. Pretty self-explanatory. And then enters the priest. And I can hear the people uh, listening to Jesus say, oh, the hero of the story. I mean, here comes the X-Men, you know, coming in. Here's the guy that knows what to do. He was the highest rank in the temple religious system or hierarchy. He had direct access to God and served as the intermediary between the people and God through their, their sins and their sacrifices and their gifts to the temple. He was the ultimate picture of the religious system that they lived as their identity. And here's the thing, no one was holier than the priest, no one. And then enter the Levite. Um, this was a title that was hereditary. You were born into the tribe of Levi, and then Levites had the opportunity to work in the temple. They were one rung below the priest. The Levites were also this clear representation of the religious system that people lived under, the Jews. And Levites knew the law by heart. They memorized it from a very young age, and so they knew all the rules associated with holiness. So these two, the first two characters besides the victim that Jesus introduces are the epitome of representing the kingdom of God, the religious rules and the structures of the day. They were the holy ones, the ones looked up to as, if you will, the pastors and the teachers and the guides of faith. And Jesus, for some reason, uses the two holiest people that you would think as the ones showing callous regard for human suffering. Why would he do that? Why would those be the two that he chooses? Now, some apologists and theologians and teachers, they'll give these two guys a pass because they'll say, well, if they had engaged with the man that was beaten up, he was bleeding and he was close to death, and there were Levitical laws and rules that if you came in contact with blood or someone who was dead, that you couldn't perform your duties in the temple. And so that's why they kind of give him a pass. Well, I, I would agree that that might be the case. Now, this was a story. It didn't really happen. Um, but I might agree with that. But maybe that is Jesus's point. Maybe that what is, is what he's trying to do, that our religious regulations are never an excuse to not live out the kingdom of God in our lives. Or maybe said a different way, our holiness is never meant to separate us from others that are created in the image of God, no matter how unclean you think that they might make you. Our holiness, which comes from God, not from our behavior, drives us toward other people, or it should. Then enters the Samaritan. Jesus had just used a Jewish man, a priest, and a Levite. All three were culturally and religiously acceptable to the group living, uh, listening. Samaritans, however, were hated. They were despised. They were the heretics accused of believing the wrong things about God, worshiping incorrectly, living wrong lives, worshiping in the wrong place. 
In our evangelical language today, we might have said, well, they kind of believe about God, but they're not saved. Yet Jesus uses the villain as the hero of the story. It seems to me that Jesus, by using the, the Samaritan, is, is deconstructing who we look up to as religiously correct. It's like he's saying the kingdom is not exemplified by professional pastors or theologians or those who know more about the scriptures or have been a Christian longer or belong, gone to church longer or anything like that. But the kingdom of God is exemplified by the average person made in the image of God whose beliefs could even be a little bit off, but they make the kingdom of God tangible, something you can feel, something you can touch. They make the kingdom of God incarnational, which we talk about Jesus that way. He was God incarnate, which incarnation just means in the flesh. And so the kingdom of God is meant to be flesh on flesh, tangible to other people. And so the hero of the story will not be the one that is more learned. The hero of the story will be the one that acts on what they've already learned. Spiritual maturity, thus, is found in simple, humble kingdom actions. That's where our maturity is. As a brilliant theologian once summarized a couple of weeks ago, we have mistaken expertise and theological knowledge for spiritual maturity. As soon as Jonathan said that two weeks ago, I whipped out my phone and had to take a picture of it. I tweeted it, and friends of mine around the world liked it because it's so true that we have mistaken religious structures, attendance, knowledge about Scripture, knowledge about God for spiritual maturity in Christ. And that's just not where it's found. In this parable, spiritual maturity is not measured by the knowledge about love that obviously the priest and the Levite had more of. In this parable, spiritual maturity is shown as love as a verb, the one that, whose beliefs were probably a little bit off. This is a big part of the easier yoke of faith that I feel after 30 years of trying to follow Jesus. I turned 59 a few weeks ago, and it has taken me so long to figure out that my faith is not defined in how much I know and how much I've learned and how much I can explain theologically uh, to people. I mean, my current PhD in missiology, the training, the teaching I do at Fuller, my job here, that will never and can never measure my spiritual maturity, and it shouldn't. My spiritual maturity should be measured in how I love other people with, how I, with what I already know. I feel like Jesus has finally revealed to me a few years ago. It's like He said, Roland, you 
you fruit head. You, it's not rocket science. He finally got to, through to me and said, if you want to be closer to me, then stop for people on the side of the road because that's where I am. And I think that is the easier yoke. If you want to be closer to Jesus, I'm not saying don't read your Bible, don't go to Bible studies, but if you want to be closer to God, then hang out where God would hang out, and you will get closer. Jesus wants us to make the kingdom tangible in people's lives. Or maybe we could say it this way. Jesus wants us to write better stories in people's lives. I mean, in a world for the last few years, we've all felt it. We're, we're inundated with hateful news and social media and divisiveness and acts of violence, all happening daily in the kingdom of the world. Jesus says, in my kingdom, which is not of this world, it's a kingdom of better stories. Stories that exhibit a love of neighbor, even a love of enemy, caring for the disenfranchised, feeding the poor, visiting those in prison, caring for the lost, and helping redeem lives. Kingdom stories are better stories than worldly stories, which is why I think Jesus uses this parable, a simple story to define one of the top commandments in all of Scripture, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus says to go and do likewise, it's about choosing to not walk on the other side of the road, but choosing to write a better story in someone's life. So how do we get ourselves to live this type of faith? How do we get ourselves to not define our faith just by church attendance or more knowledge about God, but how do we live this out on a dusty road with people? Well, here's what I know. Studies show that by uh, the end of this week and probably by the middle of the week, everyone in this room will have forgotten this sermon. And don't feel bad because that includes me. And so I want to try to do something that helps us live out this kingdom life, that inspires us, me too, to live out this kingdom life all the time. And I don't want to give you more things to do. I don't want to tell you to read more. I don't want to give you some book to read. I don't want you to study something. I don't want you to do more quiet times. I just want to give you something, all right? I just want to give you something for free. Every Monday morning, I want to give you a better kingdom story to read. I want to I balance out all the stuff that we're hearing from the world and just give you a picture and a vision for the kingdom. Because I think that if we all hear more kingdom stories, you know what? We'll become better kingdom story writers. It inspires us. I could ask for all of your phone numbers, and then I could call you on Monday morning and tell you a story. And I would love to do that or have coffee, but that would take forever. So I've got another way of doing this, and I'm going to ask you to do something that you'll never hear in another sermon. 
please pull out your cell phone. And I want you to pull out your cell phone, and I want you to text the words, better stories, and it's not case sensitive, so don't worry, but you do have to have a space between it. Text the word better stories to 94,000, 94,000, and your phone may put a space in there, 940-00, something like that. But just text those words to 94,000, and you are immediately going to get an invitation to join the Pando Collective app via Mighty Networks. That's just the company that does our app. And don't worry, I'm not sending you to something outside of the church where you're going to get all these ads and everything else. This is something that I curate personally and that the Pando Collective curates. And if you remember, the Pando Collective, like Jonathan talked about in the video, is just a missional network that we have launched here at Pulpit Rock. It's a collection of people inside our church and around our city that are kingdom story writers. They're all involved in writing better stories in our city and around the world. And so on this app, I want to send you on Monday mornings a better story. I just want to start your week with that. And it's going to be good for me because we have to find this, you know, find the stories and report them and type them in, and it's going to be great for me as well. Now, you'll know more about the Kingdom Stories if you enable your push notifications on your phone, and if that sounds like Spanish to you, then talk to your grandkids or your kids, and they'll help you figure that out. But um, I would love for you to try this for three months. Just read a better Kingdom Story every Monday morning to start your week off. And I hope it will inspire all of us to be like the Good Samaritan. Okay, well, I didn't finish the first story. We left Will running through the crowd with a cup of coffee and a waffle. I'm scared that he's going to ruin our image and our reputation and um, so I'm going after him to tell him to stop. And as I get close to the door, William comes out of the door and turns away from the crowd on the sidewalk, and he runs, starts running away from us with a cup of coffee and a waffle. I'm like, what? I stopped, you know, like, what's he doing? And after a second, I can see past Will in the distance, a man that's walking down the sidewalk really slow. And he's got a big pack on his back. And his clothes are unkept and his hair is unkept. And he's obviously probably homeless. And I remember watching Will reach this man and put down the coffee and the waffle and help him take his pack off and sit down on the sidewalk and lean up against the building and give him that cup of coffee and a waffle and then sit there and talk to him. Now, here's the sad part of this story. That homeless man walked right through the crowd on the sidewalk, many of whom, including me, were pastors, ministry leaders, there were a couple of CEOs of really big mission organizations. 
And he walked right through us like he was invisible. He could have just as easily been, well, on the other side of the road. But my son, Will, who I would characterize as a person of faith on a journey, but he doesn't share our evangelical theology necessarily. He's still on a journey. He exhibited the kingdom of God with a waffle and a cup of coffee. William taught me more about the kingdom that night than my pastoral career or my seminary career or any big theological book I've ever read. He still reminds me today because this is what he does all the time. He loves his neighbor as himself. He constantly reminds me to take my head out of my books, to not worry about my attendance as much, but to follow Jesus by actually doing what Jesus did. Throughout history, the church, not just us, but the church, proper has just tended to frame our relationship with God in terms of religion. We love to build boxes and systems and things to define ourselves by, to tell ourselves that we're in and other people are out. And the easy yoke is to take that stuff off and just realize that we're on a journey with Jesus, still learning. And our theologies may be a little bit different, but we're all called to stop for the person on the side of the road. The story of God, when you really read it and look at it, it is littered with better stories than the world. And the best story of all is the one that Jesus exhibited to us on the cross, right? And he didn't just teach us about the cross. He crawled up on it and he did it. He demonstrated the kingdom to us. And then he collects his disciples and he says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And so he doesn't just tell us that we're sent people. He tells us how we're sent people, just like he was. Now, I'm not a sent person perfectly every day. And Lord knows I catch myself on the wrong side of the road constantly. But my hope for us all as a community of faith is that we can be brave enough to stop for people. We can be brave enough to make the kingdom tangible in people's lives, not worry about the uncleanliness of someone, but to say they need the kingdom. And so we live it out and we exemplify it to them. We pick up a pen and we write a better story in the lives of people that we encounter. Pulpit Rock should be a place where our biggest goal is spiritual maturity. It should be. The spiritual maturity will never be found in how much we know. Spiritual maturity will always be found in how we live out what we already know. 
Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we love you. And just the fact that we are in this room together as a community uh, means that we want to follow Jesus with our lives and with our heart. And we struggle to find ways to connect and feel closer to you at times. I pray that you would help us see you on the side of the road with people and remind us to stop and be part of their lives in all of the places that we live and we work and we play in our neighborhoods, our workplace, the soccer fields, all the places that we walk. Help us to be that Samaritan. And in our love for you, may we show our greatest love for our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.